All right. Well, <clears throat> I'd like to, I'd like to begin in prayer, if you, if you're okay with that, very briefly. Yeah. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, St. Thomas Aquinas, Pray for us. in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, uh, let's see. Well, sometime about, I'd say a little over 10 years ago, I was on a road trip, okay? and uh, the weather was kind of somber, melancholy, rainy like today. And by the way, I do have a thesis about why uh, this kind of mist we have out here. I, I think that uh, what's going on here, and we, we can confirm this with the meteorologist later, but I think the angels are crying, actually, uh, over, over the Rockies, the Carter Rockies uh, loss uh, in Game 1 of the World Series last night. So, so, so the, 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 with, with that, I, we could check the meteorologist to see if I'm accurate tonight, so everybody tune in. Okay? Uh, anyhow, on this little road trip, I was listening to some kind of apologist, uh, maybe some kind of on, on some tape series, and I remember him beginning a lecture with this, this question, and was, it was kind of in the context of a joke. He said, what was God doing before he created the world? Okay, and, and the answer is uh, he was preparing hell for those who ask such impertinent questions. <laughs> you know? uh, and, and I would like to, I beg to differ with, with that conclusion. Uh, I think it's an extraordinarily pertinent question. In fact, a question of perennial importance. I'll get on to that later. However, there's some truth there. I think it's a misguided question. Uh, the notions of God and his relationship to the world, uh, the relationship with time, is misunderstood, which leads to the very question being a misguided one. And I hope at the conclusion of this lecture, you'll be able to see what I'm talking about. Okay, that's my hope. So, a beginning following our, our, our uh, outline here, okay, with an introduction. Uh, the questions about the world's duration have kind of raged without ceasing since the beginning of philosophy itself, okay? Uh, all the way back to uh, the material monist, the naturalist, who posited some kind of material principle from which everything uh, is derived, uh, through to the other uh, Hellenistic philosophers who would posit uh, you know, that God would be able to adduce uh, you know, uh, or some kind of demiurge, if you will, induce forms out of some kind of primordial substance or what have you. Uh, and then there was the creationists, or emanationists, uh, to be precise, uh, those who believed everything was derivative from God. But nonetheless, it was derivative necessarily, or flowed forth necessarily from God. Okay, so there's a lot of, of positions that gave conclusive, or what they thought to be conclusive or demonstrative, evidence for the fact that the world is eternal. Okay? There's also those who argued on the other side. Now, there's, not, there's a scant evidence in, in ancient philosophy for those who gave conclusive arguments for uh, the world with a finite duration. Some people believe in an ambiguous portion of the Timaeus that Plato uh, kind of favors that, that, that impression that the world had a beginning. Okay? Uh, but nonetheless, it really took the dawn of, of Christianity and the dawn of Christian uh, theology 
to have an, a notion of creation, uh, a universal cause, not a particular cause, which would adduce forms from matter, but a universal cause which is able to give being in its totality to, to creation uh, without relying on some other kind of passive potency or something. Okay. And, but nonetheless, these, these authors would then give conclusive arguments, what they thought to be conclusive arguments. St. Bonaventure would be an example of this group, although the list goes on. A lot of the Franciscan school, Roger, uh, uh, Roger Bacon, uh, Robert Grosteste, uh, et cetera, et cetera, Al-Ghazali in the Islamic world, uh, would give, try, try to give conclusive arguments that the world had a, a beginning in time. Okay? And so even amongst the medieval theologians, uh, Islamic, Jewish, Catholic, uh, this is a hotly disputed question. And in the context of the University of Paris, okay, at its heyday in the 13th century, uh, this was one of the burning questions. Okay? And so I, I'm kind of uh, moving from the topic of this lecture, which is not a, a kind of a, a comprehensive articulation of the history of what everybody said on this issue. Uh, I hope to only take 40, 45 minutes on this. Uh, so I'm going to try to bite off a more modest portion. And that is going to be uh, the contribution by the angelic doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas, to this question, uh, specifically uh, dealing with two works of his, uh, the uh, Questiones, uh, Questiones Disputate, De Potentia Dei, uh, abbreviated often just De Potentia, and uh, also we have uh, the De Eternitate Mundi, his final and most people would argue uh, most comprehensive uh, uh, statement about the question of what reason can know about the duration of the of uh, contingent being. Okay? Also in the Summa Theologiae and other relevant texts, he also talked about the Summa Contra Gentilis, his commentary on the sentences. Well, we might make a brief reference to some other work. So we're going to talk about his contribution in, in particular places, because even his contribution on this, is, on this issue is also expansive, and obviously we can't have any kind of comprehensive treatment given the time allotment. Okay? So that's our, that's our objective, is to discuss uh, the angelic doctor's contribution. Okay? Now, why is this relevant? Okay? Why is this relevant for you okay? uh, as students? And I, I would give you a few reasons. I think uh, the relevance in general okay, would be, uh, and this even transcends you as a student, but it, just a general relevance of the question itself. Uh, I might, uh, be, I, I might uh, want to talk about uh, this general relevance, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll use a quote from Richard Dales. He's a, he's a medieval scholar of uh, immense erudition who wrote on this topic. And he said this about the, about the topic that we're going to discuss. Uh, that is the topic of the lecture. Could God have created a world with an eternal duration? He said, in, in uh, the 1270s, okay, savage debates among philosophers, theologians, and clerical administrators at the University of Paris, which of course was the center of learning at the time, centered principally around three issues. The unicity of the act of intellect, the animation of the heavens, and the eternity of the world. The only one of these questions which still seems important today, and the only one which has not become irrelevant because of a change in a worldview, is the eternity of the world, or more precisely, the possibility of a beginningless world. Okay, it sums it up very well. It seems to be an issue of perennial importance that transcends any epoch. Okay, and who could debate with that? 
uh, given questions about the origin of time, uh, would be irrelevant in the content, uh, context even of contemporary physics. Okay. Uh, and, and philosophy and theology are, these are still very lively issues. So it's a lively issue that has trans-epical fascination, okay, for, for uh, those who inquire into such rarefied themes, okay. And also, I think the influence of St. Thomas is, is important here. Why is the influence of St. Thomas important? Well, he changed the course of the debate on this subject, okay. Before him, uh, Maimonides, Moses Maimonides, Rabbi Moses, as St. Thomas refers to him, uh, a Jewish the theologian born in Spain, uh, was the first to propose the, the kind of a, a, an answer to this question uh, that was similar to what St. Thomas will say. And Albert the Great affirmed him as well. But uh, with Aquinas, with his reasoning and with the clarity of his articulation about this theme, changed the course of the debate. And subsequently, not only other Dominicans, you know, in Renaissance Thomism, well, Cardinal Cajetan, um, uh, Caprellus, uh, and others, uh, along with their Jesuit uh, contemporaries, Francisco Suarez, uh, Molina, etc., everybody agrees with St. Thomas, okay, by the time uh, Renaissance Thomism rolls around, okay. So that is, is, is relatively interesting, okay. He's, his contribution seemed to change the course of the debate, okay, because of, of the clearness and, and concisive treatment he gave this topic. So also, now let's talk about relevance in particular, okay. That, that is for you as students here. Now, of course, everyone here at, Saint, uh, at, at the Christendom College is very blessed by, by having uh, a great familiarity with St. Thomas Aquinas, okay? General, the methodology of philosophy and theology at the college is taught according to the method and uh, order of St. Thomas, and that's a very good thing. However, I think there's something you can learn here. Uh, sometimes people aren't as familiar with his contribution to this topic, okay? Which was, in some senses, a, a very, uh, in some ways, polemical. Uh, a, a topic and, and, and stance that he took at this age, okay, at this time in the church. In fact, uh, following his death in 1274, he wrote the De Trinate Mundi, it's debated, but around 1270, 1271, during his second regency in Paris. Uh, he, after his death, uh, he uh, became, this work, uh, in some ways uh, kind of blackballed by the Franciscans in particular. Uh, and there's the corrective literature, which is something that's very fascinating to study. Uh, uh, William de Lamar and others wrote correctives to St. Thomas's Summa. And, and no Franciscan seminarian in, in 1882 uh, at a general chapter, they affirmed that no Franciscan seminarian should study St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and only, only Franciscan masters can teach him if they have the correctives to his summa uh, next to them. Uh, very fascinating. Okay? Someone who was known then just as Fra Thomas, a pious and really beloved uh, uh, you know, man of, of a saintly quality. But nonetheless, people were, were very uh, kind of hostile, at least the Franciscan order, to this position. Now, it goes without saying that within 50 years of his death, uh, he was, you know, by John XXII, proclaimed a saint, you know, and very quickly he grows uh, in recognition by the, the universal church as someone who is, is going to be the model and the common doctor. Uh, but at the time of, uh, that he was alive, he, he wasn't yet the doctor of the church, the common doctor. Uh, but but he, and, and because of that, there, I think it's, so, it's very interesting, you know, and the stance he took uh, was in some ways um, you know, something that was, uh, uh, was very courageous at the time. 
Okay, so I think that's interesting. And those of you who are already familiar with this topic and, and are just, you know, kind of waiting for me to say anything new they haven't heard, uh, you know, which might be some people here, uh, I'll say that I'm going to talk about in the second, the second topic here of the outline, the apologetic origin of the question, okay, that I think is kind of the remote origin of, of his interest in this topic, which I think is very fascinating and might be enlightening uh, to people who haven't haven't considered that as as a kind of a remote uh, cause, okay, his, his apologetic uh, desire, okay, to 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 evangelize and, and to win souls for Christ as being in some ways the, the fundamental reason for him entering in uh, to these debates, okay. I think that might be interesting. Okay, we'll get on to that in a minute. So those are some of the relevance. Now I just want to make, before we go on to the next point, some terminological clarifications here. Now in, in the, the fundamental work, the De Eternitate Mundi, there's two words here that are, I think, can be misleading. Okay? One is, is uh, eternity and the other is world. Let's start with the, la uh, the form, uh, we'll start with the latter actually. Uh, now the world in this context, I think it's very important to get this clear. He doesn't mean our globe, our planet, okay, planet Earth. Okay? Uh, he, he, does, he means by world, okay, the totality of contingent being, okay, everything that exists but doesn't exist by its nature. In other words, everything that was created, or to put it another way, everything that's not God, okay, but that depends upon God for its existence. Because it's not just the world, it's not even just the universe, okay. The universe itself, okay, even if you use the contemporary terminology, the space-time continuum, okay, is transcended by angelic beings, for instance. Okay, angelic beings transcend that, but nonetheless, they are contingent, a part of God's creation, and in this context, would be a part of the world as Aquinas is articulating it. Okay, now the next word I think that that uh, maybe leads to some confusion is eternity. Okay, uh, now some of those people people have studied with me. I've been kind of. Uh, I've studied this in, it was, you know, to some extent. I've seen it in the Constellation of Philosophy and Boethius. Uh, and Aquinas derives his notion of eternity. He, he actually quotes Boethius. Uh, Boethius, uh, in his Constellation, says that eternity in God is the simultaneous, whole, and perfect possession of interminable life. I think that's a good translation. The simultaneous whole and perfect possession of interminable life. Okay? That's eternity in God. When he's talking about the eternity of the world, it's not being used in this sense. He's not arguing for the possibility of something being co-eternal with God. Okay, uh, that that uh, it's, it's impossible. Okay, only God has eternity in that unique way. Okay, nonetheless, eternity in this sense, okay, is in some ways fulfilling only that latter criteria, the latter part of of Boethius's definition. So the simultaneous whole and perfect possession of interminable life. Okay, that interminable life is, is what we're talking about. It, in some ways everlasting, okay, a, a life or an existence that has change, it has potency, it has, it's, it's mutable, it's not immutable like God. Of course, his eternity, as Aquinas uh, mentions in question 10 of the Summa, follows, uh, his eternity falls on his uh, immutability, okay. And that is something that this eternal world would not have. It would be mutable. It would be changing. Okay. It simply wouldn't have had a beginning. Okay. Or possibly not an end. Okay. So that is what he's talking about. Okay. So that that's not to confuse it and uh, thinking that he's trying to argue that it would be coeternal with God. Of course, it would be entirely 
ontologically dependent upon God for its existence, upon God's will for willing it into existence, and God would have to sustain it in existence uh, for the totality of its interminable uh, existence, if you will. Okay? Very good. So that, that, I think that treats sufficiently our introduction. Okay? Let's go into now the apologetic origin of this question. Okay? Now, I think this is interesting. Uh, now, of course, uh, the tradition, uh, the magisterium, the tradition, the scriptures uh, of our faith uh, constantly affirmed and reaffirmed that the world has a beginning in time. Okay? And in fact, in 1215, at the Fourth Lateran Council, okay, this is about 10 years before the birth of, of, of St. Thomas, it was defined uh, definitively uh, at this council that by his almighty power, this is the eternal Godhead, at the beginning of time, created from nothing, both spiritual and corporeal creatures. Okay? And of course, St. Thomas's submission to this, you know, this definition by the church is perfect and complete. He absolutely will affirm what we know by faith, that the world does, in fact, positively have a beginning in time. Okay? Well, if he had agreed with what the church said, then why on earth did he spend so long writing about it? You know, He agreed with the church. He agreed. It's a done deal. But why on earth did he dedicate you know, over six different uh, parts of works and an individual treatise, the De Trinitate Mundi, to this question uh, if, if, if he already knew the answer? That is, that the world did have a beginning in time. Okay? And I will say it's because... Okay, of, of his desire, okay, uh, to evangelize souls, okay, and, and I'll try to defend that conclusion. It's not, maybe isn't such an easy conclusion to defend, but I'm going to try to do that as a remote cause of his desire to enter into these themes. Okay, approximate desire would be his desire to refute certain arguments. Uh, Ignatius Brady uh, uh, had, wrote a scholarly work where he thought that this work was written in response to a Franciscan named John Peckham, that during one of his disputations at the University of Paris, uh, he, at, he publicly rejected St. Thomas. And the Dominicans pushed St. Thomas to write a response. And some people propose that that is the origin, the, the, the proximate origin of this. But I think, as far, insofar as Thomas dealt with this issue in many works, that he had a, another goal in mind, okay? And that was this evangelization of souls and to win souls for Christ. Now, now, how am I going to defend that? Okay, well, it, it, I think I think it's not as difficult as it might sound. Okay, now let's let's take uh, this fact that this this has been defined def definitively that the world had a beginning in time. We know this by faith. Well, then the question remains a theoretical or philosophical question: Could God have created a world? And this is the question of the lecture with an eternal duration if He wanted to. Okay, now if the answer is no, okay? That we can give conclusive demonstrations, okay? That the world had to have a beginning in time, okay? Well, then that's going to be significant, okay? That's going to be significant because that would give rational demonstrations that could convince non-believers of the truth of our faith, okay? Uh, and that would be significant. 
Now Aquinas will come to see that that is not possible, and we'll deal with in the last work why he shows that it is a possibility okay, that God cre could create a world with an eternal duration. So then his ob objective, knowing that he can't demonstrate this by reason, now there's some truths of faith, if you will, that can be demonstrated by reason, God's existence for instance, okay? but he says that technically an article of faith is not demonstrable, Okay? An article of faith is not demonstrable, or else it won't be an article of faith. Its very nature presupposes that you have to believe okay, in order to know X, Y, or Z truth, known by way of faith. Therefore, since the existence of God, which can be believed if someone doesn't understand the arguments, uh, that is technically, according to St. Thomas, a preamble to the articles of faith because it can be proven rationally. Okay? But this is not one of those things, the eternity of the world. In fact, he'll say uh, very conclusively uh, that uh, by faith alone, and this is in question 46 of the Summa Theologiae, by faith alone do we hold, and by no demonstration can it be proved that the world did not always exist, as was said above about the mystery of the Trinity. Okay? That is earlier in the Summa. Okay, so it can't be proven. So his goal, though, his goal is always I would I, I, to make the faith believable. Okay, to make the faith credible to believers and non-believers alike. Okay, so that now he can't demonstrate it. So what is he going to do? Okay, well, in, I, I, I propose that he he knows, of course, that there's a unity. Okay, of truth that faiths and truths of faith and truths of reason cannot contradict each other. Okay, but this truth cannot be demonstrated by reason. So then what is he going to do? I think he's going to find two adversaries here. Okay? He's going to try to use reason to make intelligible. Okay? Not, uh, he's not going to try to demonstrate, but make intelligible the, truths, uh, the truth of the Catholic faith, okay? that the world had a beginning in time. So he's going to have two adversaries. The first is those who try to give rational demonstrations that the world had to be eternal. Okay? He's going to give concrete arguments, philosophical arguments against them, demonstrating that the world did not have to be eternal, does not have to be eternal, and, and, and in fact is not, okay? or at least, there, and which opens them, okay, having proved that, that the world doesn't have to be eternal, that God doesn't have to, by way of his nature or will, produce an eternal world, that leaves people open okay, to the positive contribution made by faith to this question, okay? knowing that reason wouldn't be able to conclude that the world is eternal, they're left with the possibility that it had a beginning in time. And, and that possibility is affirmed by way of the faith. But they can see that, that, that at least reason is not going to contradict the faith, which is a, a very good starting point if you're trying to evangelize someone who doesn't assent to the faith. Now, the second adversary is interesting. Okay? The second adversary are those people who try to give reasons rational demonstrations on behalf of this article of faith. Okay? They actually try to give reasons, conclusive reasons, that would convince the pagan okay, that the world had to have a beginning in time. And those become his adversaries. Why is that? I'll use his own language here. I'll, I'll quote St. Thomas. Okay? He says, again, this is in question uh, 46, I think article 2 of the, of the Summa here. If we presumptuously undertake to demonstrate what is of faith, okay, we may introduce arguments 
that are not strictly conclusive. And this would furnish infidels with an occasion for scoffing, as they would think that we assent to truce of faith on these grounds. Okay. Now, it's subtle. I, I wonder if that's clear. Okay. Now, he says that the infidels are going to laugh at us okay, if we say, and, and they're, they're liable to confuse the faulty reasoning that we're using to try to demonstrate that the world had a beginning in time, okay, they're liable to confuse that with this truth of faith that is known only by faith, like the Trinity, okay, and they will, unfortunately, uh, they won't be able to extricate the truth of faith from this faulty reasoning, okay, and therefore it, it will kind of shine a poor light, if you will, on this truth of faith, because people will think that we assent to the truth of faith, not because we believe it, because God revealed it, but because of this faulty reasoning that is insufficient and unable to demonstrate rationally that the world had to have a beginning in time. And because of this reason, he will try to give conclusive arguments to disprove the arguments uh, that would say that the world had to have a beginning in time. Okay? And then again, all of this to reaffirm the church's position that by faith and by faith alone do we know conclusively that the world had to have a beginning in time. Okay? Now that's, I think, very interesting. Okay? He certainly didn't have to engage this philosophical question, but I think he did it with the purpose of making the truth clear. Okay, and of preventing any stumbling blocks or obstacles okay, that non-believers would have on their way to assenting to the totality of revealed truth. Okay? So that's, I think, the conclusion there of the second point. Now he's going to find these, uh, go after these adversaries. The first adversary are those people who are going to give conclusive arguments that the world had to be eternal. Okay? And uh, for, for lack of time, I'm, I'm going to uh, abbreviate my treatment, but I'll give uh, you know, three different groups here. Okay. The first one, as you see in the outline, is the arguments against the Hellenistic proponents of an eternal world. Okay. Now, he will argue against uh, the pre-Socratics okay, by saying they couldn't uh, fundamentally conceive of... Okay, a creator, okay, that would be an efficient cause of the world as opposed to an exclusive material cause. That they reduced causality fundamentally to material causality. And because of that, they fell into errors. Okay? And also, there was other errors of people who believed there was some kind of efficient cause which would, would, would be able to induce or order okay, uh, this, this, uh, the, some kind of, of potential something out there into a, co a coherent order and structure. The problem here is he said that they likened okay, this God th to do this to a particular cause, okay, instead of a universal cause, which is able to give being in its totality. And thought that like the artist who has to induce a form okay, from the slab of marble, that some kind of created be creator would have to induce the created world from some kind of material substrate, okay? And not conceiving of creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, okay? Which, which is something that they didn't conceive of. And in some ways, I think the dawn of Christianity, uh, in point of fact, this is what happened. 
the dawn of Christianity came, and only then were people able to comprehend this notion of an efficient cause who was a universal cause that would give being to, to something in its totality and not just uh, educe causes from some kind of material substrate. Okay? And so because they couldn't conceive of creation out of nothing, okay, uh, they, they weren't able to argue okay, that there could be some kind of God who wouldn't eternally create. Okay? Or at least a material substrate that would have to eternally exist in order for God to adduce and order his world from this source. Okay? So that's his argument against these, these Hellenic, uh, in, in a very abbreviated treatment, against the kind of the Hellenic proponents of, it, of uh, Hellenic proponents of an eternal world. Okay? Now the arguments, and these become even more interesting, I think, against creationists now, who held that God created, okay, the eternal world by the necessity of his nature. Okay? And this would be the Neoplatonists and Avicenna. Okay? Uh, Avicenna is, of course, Ibn Sena, the, a great Muslim uh, philosopher okay, of the 10th century. Okay, now to, to go into this argument. Okay, again, these are the arguments of people who are trying to give concrete demonstrations that the world had to be eternal. Okay, so again, let's, let's review Neoplatonism a little bit. Okay, the Neoplatonist had a theory of emanation. Okay, that everything proceeded from uh, this one perfect and good source, uh, which, which goodness by necessity kind of overflowed, like, like too much uh, fluid in a cup. And in this manner, caused and created beings in a descending order of perfection. Okay? This is the Neoplatonic notion of creation. This, this one perfect good, uh, by its nature, goodness being effusive, will, will, will disseminate and overflow its being onto and give being to other beings in kind of this, this descending hierarchy uh, of beings. Okay? And that's more or less, uh, but this is something that would happen by nature. Okay, according to the nature of this cause, by nature, by the nature of, of this good origin of all things, this being had to produce okay, an eternal creation. Okay? Now Avicenna, in large part, okay, took up the arguments here of the Neoplatonists. Okay? He took up their arguments, although he does allow for a little bit more of a clarification, a, a, a distinction, because this world that's eternal would seem to be necessary in the same way, God is necessary. Okay? But he'll make a distinction here. He'll say that the, the God is, is necessary per se, okay? whereas the world is only necessary per accidens, okay? by way of another. Okay? God, in his nature, okay, is a necessary being. Okay? All of created beings are in themselves possible, okay? and, and essentially nothing until they receive their existence from God. Okay? So they necessarily flow forth from God, but they don't exist. Uh, their essence isn't to exist the way God's essence is to exist. Okay? The only necessary being in the universe, in the per se sense, would be God. And his creation would only be necessary in a per accidens sense. Okay? But nonetheless, it would flow forth from him uh, naturally according to the nature of this perfect being, whose goodness is intrinsically just diffusive. Okay. Now, St. Thomas's refutation of this argument goes as follows. And he gives this, this refutation 
in his De Potentia. Okay? It, uh, he gives it in the corpus of the De Potentia when he kind of goes through some of this history of these arguments. Okay? And, and he'll respond by first re-articulating Avicenna's argument. Okay? And this is what Avicenna will do. He says, okay, and this is, this is kind of um, the objection, that Avicenna proves in his metaphysics that every effect is necessary in relationship to its cause. And from that principle, it seems to follow that where there is sufficient cause, the effect must necessarily follow. But God is sufficient cause of the world. Therefore, since God has always existed, the world too has always existed. Okay? This is the argument that he gives on behalf of Avicenna, a kind of rearticulation and summary of his argument. And again, this shows you know, Aquinas' notorious intellectual charity, his ability to really understand the arguments of his adversaries and sometimes articulate them, them better than their own disciples. Because then, having been able eventually to overcome those adversaries, his victory is all the more significant because of the weight he gave and the credibility he gave to their errant conclusions. Okay? So his conclusion goes as follows. Okay? And we find a distinction okay, that's present in, in many other arguments. Okay? He, he first affirms the true statement of Avicenna, that there is a necessary relationship between causes and effects. But secondarily, he clarifies something. He clarifies okay, that the cause producing an effect may either be natural or voluntary. Okay, that's, that's important. So God is himself naturally the fullness of every perfection. Okay? He has no need of creating any other being. Thus, as the cause of the world, he creates not by necessity, but by a voluntary free act of his will. Okay? And finally, and now I quote St. Thomas here, he says, hence the effect caused by God must necessarily follow, not so as to be coextensive in duration with the divine nature, but at the time disposed for its existence by the divine will, and precisely such as God willed it to be. Okay? So to summarize a little bit there, okay, uh, this being creates by a necessity of nature. Okay? And if there's a necessary cause, the, cause, the necessary relationship between cause and effect, given the nature of, of an eternal cause, it would seem that by nature, its effect also has to be eternal. However, St. Thomas says, you're forgetting something. Okay? This eternal being, which is God, okay, uh, can produce by nature or by a free act of his will. And God, of course, not needing any other being, not needing to produce any other being, uh, it would somehow perfect his own existence, but simply out of the gratuitousness of, of, his own, of, of his own will, desired to allow other beings to share in his goodness. And so he created the world. Okay? Now, now here comes the argument of the will. Okay? And this is the second argument. So we've, we've, I think St. Thomas has sufficiently responded to that objection, okay? uh, based on the, the, the necessity of nature that God has to create, but maybe in the very nature of the will. Okay? That, that a being would, if it's eternal, would have to will to create an eternal world and couldn't, as we mentioned in this joke in the beginning of, of the lecture today, you know, wait for a while before creating. Okay? You know, again, you know, God was waiting around, you know, uh, preparing hell for people who ask that kind of question. Okay? But that isn't, isn't the case. And let's look at 
kind of something that will give intelligibility and enable us to see even how that original question is a little bit misguided. Okay? So, so the argument uh, goes like this. Okay? The, the God created by an act of his will, but there was nonetheless uh, constrained to create an eternal world. Okay? Given that God couldn't put off doing you know, what he willed to do from eternity, but just because you know, God wills everything from the eternity of his nature, if he wills it, it has to proceed immediately and instantaneously. Okay? So Aquinas will respond to this okay, by saying, judging the, the entire universe was produced by God through an act of his will and not by way of motion. And this is re-articulating the argument. Some people endeavored to prove that the eternity of the world, okay, by arguing that the will does not put off doing what it intends to do, unless some innovation of change intervened. And St. Thomas saw this to be a terrible confusion. Okay? In this case, he says, time is referred to as being coextensive with God. Okay? When, in fact, time is, like creation, one of his creatures, an effect of God, which also bears an existential dependency upon him. Okay? Hence, other corporeal agents okay, must produce their effects in time. But God produces them outside of time, or better yet, along with time. Okay? So Aquinas concludes, and this is his quote that I think sums this up extremely well, we ought not consider the question why he made the world at a particular moment rather than sooner. Such a question supposes that time preceded the making instead of being conditional on the making. Okay, so again, uh, he per the, the very idea that God could delay and then create, or, and it, it, because that's unintelligible, that he'd have to create uh, instantaneously, and, and, and he couldn't create a finite world, presupposes that time precedes the making instead of being conditional on the making. Okay? Only when God chooses and wills to create other beings, okay, does change enter the universe or enter contingent being. And only with this creation does time begin. Okay? So even when we say that God created the world in time, as St. Augustine notes even, okay, that this doesn't mean that there was this length of time going on and then all of a sudden God created Okay? He says it's better that it's along with time, and even Augustine says that, is that time begins, is contingent upon the making, and doesn't precede it. Okay? So now we're going to treat the last topic, and this is kind of the crux of things. Okay? Now having refuted these arguments that the world has to be eternal, Aquinas will now turn his attention uh, to our question of this lecture. Could God have created a world with eternal duration? Okay. Now, if the answer is uh, is, we'll get to that. If the answer is yes, okay. If the answer is yes, okay, it'll have some very profound ramifications. Okay. If the answer is no, uh, that also will be interesting. Okay. But we have to remember here that, that there's nothing theologically that's radically at stake. Okay. We all submit, and Aquinas begins this work by saying we all submit in faith to the pronouncement of the church, that the world had a beginning in time. Yet the question remains, could God have created an eternal world? Okay? If he could not have, 
then we could give conclusive demonstrations okay, to this revealed truth, which would put it in the category of this preambles of faith. Okay? But if we can't, then we have to go against and refute any arguments which seek to treat in a necessary way okay, that God had to create a world in a finite duration. Okay? Fearing again, given the apologetic origin of this question, that, that the faulty reasoning of trying to give demonstrations of things that can't be demonstrated, that that faulty reasoning would be unfortunately intrinsically tied to the faith itself, which would give unbelievers an occasion of scoffing and would in some way defame and put up an obstacle from people accepting the totality of truth revealed by way of God and his church. Okay, now he says there's two ways here. Okay, first of all, let's look at God. Let's look at his nature. Okay, he's omnipotent. He can do whatever he wants, right? He's omnipotent. That's what an omnipotent being can do, anything. Okay, now the only things an omnipotent being can't do, which is a little bit of a misnomer, are things that can't be done. Okay, God can do anything. But it's, it's a fact, too, that some things can't be done. Okay, uh, for instance, a square circle. Okay, it's not that God doesn't have the power to do it, but it's simply it can't be done because it's contradictory. Okay, uh, a, a square circle would simultaneously be a square for the same reasons it's a circle. It's a, it's, a, it's a contradiction. Okay, it can't come into being. Okay, there's nothing. There's something contradictory to it. Okay, now these are the only things it seems that God cannot do. Okay, everything else God can do. Okay, so there's no contradiction in the notion of God creating. Okay, an eternal world, okay, given the notion of eternal that we've already clarified. If there's no contradiction, then it would actually be impious to say that God could not do it. And he turns the tables on his adversaries with this stroke. Okay? He'll say, okay, that where they're saying, you know, you're being impious by saying you can't prove something that, that is known by faith. He's saying, well, I, I can't prove it, okay? Okay, and what you're doing actually, okay, is saying if you're if you're wrong, you're actually putting a limit on God's omnipotence. However, if I'm wrong and I simply am saying that God can do something that's contradictory, I'm only wrong, but I'm not a heretic. Okay, and I'm not defaming God's omnipotence. Okay, and that's sometimes the benefit of being a philosopher sometimes. You make a mistake, you're only wrong. You know, you're not a heretic, you know. Uh, that's why I don't, I don't try to dabble with too much theology, you know. Anyhow, so, so there we are. So that's the question. St. Thomas is like, if, if I'm wrong, that, that God could create an eternal world, I'm simply saying that he can create a square circle, which is kind of, it's, it's not, it, 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 people even, he says, in the history of the church, have said that God could make a past event not to happen. And they were considered not to be heretics, but just to be wrong, okay? And so if he's just, if he makes a mistake here, he's wrong. However, if his adversaries make a mistake, okay, then they're actually defaming God's omnipotence by saying that he can't do something that can be done, okay? So here's his arguments, okay? And I'm going to go, I think, another five to ten minutes, and that's what I'm looking at here, okay? So his arguments proceed as follows. He said that there can be uh, really, there can be uh, two really substantive, substantive challenges, okay? 
Okay, the first thing, and, and he overcomes this argument very easily, okay, and, and it would be, okay, that somehow, okay, the reason God couldn't do this, okay, would be because of the absence of a passive potency, okay, and he deals with this, this possibility very easily, okay. In other words, God would be likened to a particular cause, that if there wasn't this primordial stuff out there, this material substrate, if it wasn't eternal, then God couldn't create. But that's heretical, okay, to believe that God is in need of some external thing in order for him to create, okay? So maybe the, the objection that God couldn't create an eternal world because then he, he uh, 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 wouldn't, uh, he would, because there's an absence of a pass, passive potency, it is done, done away with here, okay? And so the real obstacle here, and this is the substantive and the most foundational ar argument, is whether it's contradictory. For something to be created in its entirety by God, and for the same something, okay, uh, to exist for eternity, okay, okay, good. So that's the question here. Now let's look at it. Now, for the notion to be created by God, okay, and to exist for eternity to be found co uh, contradictory, it must be for one of the following two reasons. Okay, either the agent cause, in this case God, must precede his effects in time. Or because non-being must proceed and affect in time. Okay. Now to this first objection. Okay. That is that God has to proceed His effects in time. Okay. He gives examples of even natural situations. Okay. Where a cause proceeds its effects not just in time. Okay. Well, uh, in, in in not it doesn't proceed its effects in time, but in being. Okay, and I'll explain what's going on here. Okay, let's take the, the instance of a flame, okay, of a lighter. Okay, you, you flip the lighter. Okay, now the, the, the flame itself is the cause of heat, the heat that's produced. Okay, however, those, the, the effect appears simultaneously with its cause. Okay, the minute there's a flame, there's heat. Okay, there's no, there's no, there's no delay. Okay, the minute there is a flame, the effect follows. Okay? So there's a kind of priority here. There's not a priority in time, but there's a priority in nature okay? of cause to effect. Without the flame, there's no heat. Okay? But nonetheless, there isn't a passage of time. And so St. Thomas says that the reason people can't come to this, this knowledge is usually, in most causal situations, a cause precedes its effect in time and motion. Okay, uh, and time and nature, I should say. But in this case, okay, it precedes its effect only in nature, but not necessarily in time. Okay, you know, when you bowl a bowling ball and the pins fall down, okay, you proceed, the cause of you bowling, the pins falling down, it happens before, okay, in time, the cause, you bowling, proceeds its effect in time and in nature. But in certain natural situations, uh, where things produce this, their effects instantaneously, there's still an ontological dependence of, of effect on cause, but there isn't uh, a dependence in time. Okay, and so too with God, who produces His effects simultaneously. Okay, with His nature, or He certainly can. Well, then it wouldn't be contradictory for Him to create a being that didn't have a beginning or didn't have an end. Okay. Now the last thing I'm going to talk about here is the is the last objection. Okay, and that is for uh, the, the possible objection, okay, that non-being must proceed and affect in time, 
Okay. Now this has to do a little bit with this, this notion of ex nihilo. Okay. Now the world's an eternal world's non-being. Okay, must precede its being in time is the position some people would advocate. Okay. But Aquinas is going to show how this is not necessarily the case. It's not necessary for a being's non-being to precede its being in time. Okay. And he says this will be clarified when we talk about the notion of nothing. Okay. When it's said, for instance, that God creates something ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing, what this means is not that there's some nothing that exists before something, but that he doesn't create out of something. Okay. Ex nihilo okay, doesn't mean, again, that there's something that exists for a while, and then, he cre and then, and then from that something else comes to be, from non-being to being. But simply, ex nihilo means it's not created from something, as some kind of material substrate that God would have to create from. Okay? That's what this ex nihilo is rejecting. Okay? But there is the possibility okay, that something okay, could, uh, uh, non-being, okay, then, is, is not to be understood as being uh, creating out of nothing, as preceding the creation, uh, but is simply understood as not out of something. Okay, because I, he makes the, then the point, okay, that nothing, okay, nothing is itself nothing. Okay, I, I, it's good to remember that nothing is nothing, and so it can't positively exist before creation because it doesn't exist at all. Okay, and he says even the fact that there could be some positive relationship between nothing, okay, and and, and the being that comes forth from it. And he says that there, there's even that possibility. But even this still affirms that God could create an eternal world. And he says that given a being, in its essence, it is nothing. Okay? In the sense that it doesn't have existence by its very essence. Okay? And so in some senses, there's a priority here. That, that after can refer to a priority in nature okay, or a priority in time. But if you, were, if you say that a being has its being after its non-being with a priority in nature, St. Thomas said that that's intelligible. Okay? Because okay, a being simply in itself is nothing without God. Okay? Its essence without God's given in existence doesn't exist. Okay? It can't exist. Okay? And so the, it, essentially it's nothing. And so in some senses, it's, in a priority of nature, its essence proceeds its being, okay, in nature, because it needs to receive its being from God. And in that sense, even eternal world could be created ex nihilo, because in itself, it isn't anything, unless God gives it being. Essentially, it doesn't exist the way God does. Essentially, it's nothing without God. And so then it could have this positive relationship of its own nothingness, essentially, to God giving it being. Okay, and therefore he believes that having overcome those two objections, that there's nothing contradictory. Okay, in the notion for something to be created and for it to have an eternal duration, and therefore we can say that God could have done it. Okay, however we know he didn't. We know he didn't by way of theology. Okay, and, and he says that we can give good reasons why God created the world at the beginning. It seems fitting that there would be a beginning. It helps. It helps, it helps us to, to, to think and to contemplate God's transcendence, okay? When, when even all of contingent being had a beginning and it wasn't eternal. So there's good reasons why God willed to create a world with a finite duration. But those can't be confused with demonstrations, 
Okay? And because of that, there's no demonstration that concludes positively or negatively that the world is, is either eternal or finite. We have to rely on faith, like the knowledge of the Blessed Trinity, and, and, and use our reason to go against any arguments against the world as being necessarily eternal or against any arguments that it's finite in order to clear the way for people to see the, the unison between faith and reason, okay? and to clear the way for the, the truth of faith that is the only positive knowledge we have of the world's duration. Thanks for your time. Thank you.